Hello, and welcome to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. I am, as always, as I have always been, Garrett Ashley Mullet. And today we're going to talk about propaganda. What brings this to mind is, in part, the 2020 election. There's a lot of propaganda, a lot of political campaigning, a lot of articles and news pieces which are uh, designed they are written, they are contrived, they are shared with the intention of helping you to be motivated to vote a certain way, to support a certain way, to influence your friends a certain way. And yet, I really do wonder, the older I get, the more I read, the more I study, the more I watch society around me, how many people are aware that they are being manipulated? And I don't want to get all conspiracy theorist here and Alex Jones and weird tinfoil hat wearing whatever, but that's just it. You know, there's a lot of folks that seem to think that as soon as you start talking about mass manipulation and conspiracies to mislead the public and misinformation and disinformation and censorship and all that they dismiss it or they kind of get uncomfortable and shift in their seat or look around for someone else to talk with or whatever because there's a, a question once you get to the conclusion that propaganda is all around us a question of what do you do with that and there are a few answers one of the answers is that there's nothing you can do. There's nothing that can be done about it. The powers that be have decided to manipulate us, and that makes me feel really helpless and powerless, and I don't want that. So I'm going to just back away from this uncomfortable feeling of being out of control of the information that's flowing around me. There's also the option that you're now going to have to go looking for reliable sources of information and that's going to be hard work and we just don't feel like it. We've got other things that are going on. We've got other life that needs to be lived. We've got um, choices that need to be made in our personal lives. And so maybe we should just retreat into our own personal business. We'll mind our own business and live a quiet life working with our hands as the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica talks about aspiring to live a quiet life, working with our own hands, minding your own business. But I don't want us to take those easy ways out. I don't want us to say either A, we can't do anything about it. There's no avoiding propaganda. There's no avoiding being manipulated. And so just go with it and take the path of least resistance on the one hand. And I don't want us to take the lazy route either on the other hand, where we say, hmm, no, I'm tired. Um, you know, yesterday I tried to encourage my older sons, my four older sons, to clean up the basement. And I'll give you some context there to help it make sense. We are renting a house in Greeley, Colorado. There are two stories and a basement. So there's the main floor on ground level. There is the second story, which is where my wife and I have our bedroom. Right next to our bedroom is our sons, John and Enoch's bedroom. And then just down the hall is our daughter Evelyn's bedroom. And there's a bathroom and there's an office. And I'm actually sitting in that office that is in the common open area right now. And I can look out and I can see the door to my bedroom and my wife's bedroom. I can see the door to my son's John and Enoch's bedroom. And I can see the door to uh, my daughter Evelyn's bedroom. On the main floor, we've got the kitchen, dining room a sitting room, as we call it, a library, a bathroom, laundry room. And then we have the basement. And the basement is all four of our older boys. Uh, that's their space. They have uh, two bunk beds down there for the four of them. They have their dressers. There's a second refrigerator down there for the overflow, leftovers, things like that. And then there's also a, a living room down there. We've got a TV, Xbox, Nintendo Switch, Entertainment Center, all that set up down there. And we've got a bathroom down there. We've got a desk with a computer that they can do drawing on. They can play some older games. It's not the nicest uh, computer that we've got. It's one of our older ones. But one of the consequences of them being in the basement is that, uh, yes, they have 
freedom. They have uh, their own space to kind of be themselves and, and not have us hovering over them all the time. We get a little insulation from the noise. I don't know if you're aware of this, but uh, young male uh, children are loud. Uh, they are very loud. And so them being in the basement insulates the rest of the house a little bit from that extra noise. So that's nice. And, but one of the, the downsides of them being in the basement is that they are not always on the ball when it comes to tidying up, cleaning up after themselves. Now, this is true of wherever they are. For instance, in the kitchen and the dining room, each of our four older boys has a chore. Right now, Eli's is the dishes. Josiah's is to put away the food after every meal. Solomon's is to clear the table and wipe it down. And Daniel's is to sweep and mop the floors if they need it. So we have to regularly remind them that these are their chores. Uh, some of them require more reminding than others. And uh, if we don't remind them, who knows how long it would be before they just naturally remembered that, oh yeah, I have this responsibility, I have this chore, I shouldn't just run off and go do whatever right after the meal. In the basement, it's not quite so easy. My wife has uh, bad knees and uh, she recently had uh, yet another knee surgery to correct her left knee. At a certain point, she will need all the same on her right knee, but we are putting that off for as long as possible because it's difficult to drive with uh, the right knee, and, and you really don't want to take two out at the same time. At least if one of them is okay, you can limp along, literally and figuratively, uh, while the, the left one is healing up. But... Um, it's difficult for her to do stairs. So she does the stairs as seldom as possible. And she doesn't always go down to the basement um, on a daily basis, on a regular basis to check and see how that space is looking. Are they maintaining it? Are they taking care of it? Are they picking up after themselves? So yesterday morning, I didn't go down there, but I just knew from talking with them, from asking them, hey, is your room clean? Is the basement clean? I knew that it wasn't. Uh, you, it doesn't have to be a quick yes or a no for you to know when your child's room is not clean. If they just say, um, then you know that's a no, right? If it was clean, they would know that it was clean and they would be beaming with pride and they would instantly tell you, hey, my room is clean. Isn't that great? So when they say, uh, you know that that's a no, they, their room is not clean. So I told them yesterday morning, hey guys, Mandalorian, Season 2, Episode 1 is out on Disney+. Plus. I'd really like to watch it. I think we should watch it. What do you guys think? Yeah, yeah, we should watch it. Well, I'll make you a deal. You guys clean up your basement, and we will watch it this evening. We will watch The Mandalorian in the basement this evening. We'll eat popcorn. We'll eat uh, red vines, which are kind of like Twizzlers. And we'll have some ice cream, and we'll watch this uh, season premiere of Mandalorian. Now, Mandalorian, for those that are uninitiated, is this Star Wars universe series that Disney has been producing. They started it last year. This is season two. Last year was season one. We watched all of season one, and it was very good. It was actually it was really exciting to see a Star Wars universe series done well and done right. With Jedi not really at the center of it, the main character is not a Jedi, he's a Mandalorian. He's like Boba Fett or Jango Fett, if you're familiar with the movies. And so this new series, season two, was much anticipated. We were excited about seeing it when it came out. And now that it's out, it's that's a motivator. And so I said, hey guys, you need to clean up your basement so that we can watch this uh, episode, this, this new season that's just come out. And they had all day long to do it. It was a Saturday. Today's Sunday morning. And uh, daylight savings time has struck. So this is an hour earlier than it would have been yesterday, supposedly. Uh, even though it's the same time that I wake up every morning. I always wake up right about 5 a.m. It's just this morning. My clock thought it was 4 a.m. It's really 5 a.m., right? But... Uh, I gave them this challenge or this encouragement, or I tried to make this deal with my four older boys early yesterday on a Saturday, and they said, okay. And so they spent a considerable amount of time down in the basement, and at a certain point they said, yeah, it's clean. And I said, okay, great, awesome. And so that was my mistake. I should have said, let's go take a look. 
I should have said, let's verify. Trust but verify, as Ronald Reagan once said. Uh, I trust you guys. I love you guys. I trust that you don't always have the same definition of clean that I do. And, uh, and you know, experience has proven that true. I think I was just tired after a long work week yesterday and didn't even think about verifying for whatever reason. And I think also, too, it's a little bit of wishful thinking. Like, I, I want to believe you, right? Uh, I want to believe them when they say that it's clean because at a certain point, I'm sure that will be the case, that when they say something's clean, it will be clean and we'll, we'll be in agreement when I look at it. I'll say also, yes, this is clean. Good job, guys. Like, way to be. You're coming along. But uh, we're not there yet. That time has not yet come. And so the question I had uh, for them of, is your room clean, was answered in the affirmative. And I just accepted that. And so then they went about their business. Some of them went outside to play. Some of them played some uh, video games. And the main floor was pretty tidy. It was, it was in good shape. And then I was cleaning up. This is the way it usually goes on Saturdays. I catch up on laundry for my wife. Uh, she puts everything through the washer and dryer, and then it just kind of it just kind of piles up in our room in baskets. And then I sort it, and then I give the boys their uh, clothes to take down to the basement. They sort those still further, fold them, hang them up, put them in drawers, whatever needs to happen with those. I give my daughter her clothes, and then she, in theory, gets them put away uh, at a certain point usually with help after we've given her as much time as possible to uh, do it on her own. She's uh, seven, so she's not quite there yet. We're working with her. We're trying to help her along towards that end. And uh, and then I do my wife's and mine and all of the knickknacks, all of the miscellaneous you know, towels, blankets, uh, sheets, things like that. So so that was the plan yesterday. And, and just to tidy up, right? I'm up here on the main floor. I don't necessarily want to go up and down the stairs all day. I don't have bad knees, but I don't necessarily want to be up and down the stairs. And so I'm up here. I'm just kind of resting and, and relaxing and kind of recovering from the previous week and getting ready for the next week and getting my space tidied up, getting my desk tidied up, getting my bedroom and, and bathroom, the master bathroom up here tidied up, helping the two youngest kids uh, John and Enoch getting their room clean, helping my daughter to get her room clean, et cetera, et cetera. And so we get to the evening and it's getting later and later. Uh, my wife gave haircuts, so that was nice. But we get to the point where we're going to watch The Mandalorian. And I say, okay, guys, hey, it's getting later and later. We should probably do this sooner if we're going to do it at all this evening. So let's get some ice cream out. Let's get, you know, ready. Let's go down to the basement and let's watch The Mandalorian. And so we do that. We get ice cream served up. And uh, one of our neighbors, uh, kids was over, their daughter was over, and she was playing with my daughter, and uh, so she got some ice cream too, which was cool. And I get my ice cream, and I go down to the basement, and I am quickly disabused of my previous notion that this space was clean, because it's not. And uh, so we canceled our plans to watch Mandalorian. And, uh, and uh, you know, it's canceled, postponed, however you want to say it. Not right now. You know, we, we can't watch it. That was the deal was you guys get the basement clean. We'll watch The Mandalorian. Basement's not clean, so we're not going to watch The Mandalorian just yet. You get the basement clean and then come see me. And so they all got sent back to working on it. And, um, yeah, we'll have to check and see this afternoon. Is it clean? Is it actually clean? Is it clean by my definition of clean? Is it clean by your definition of clean? They're not necessarily the same thing. But the path of least resistance in that case is a bit tricky because on the one hand, you want to be efficient and economical with your use of energy, with your use of your time and your attention. I don't want to stand over my boys or my daughter all the time while they do their chores. In fact, I can't, right? There's seven of them. They have chores in different places. I can't stand over all of them simultaneously. And I also can't stand over all of them while they're doing their chores when I have stuff that I need to do. So long term, at a certain point, they're going to grow up and they're going to leave the house and they're going to have their own home, their own family. They're going to need to be able to do these chores without their father or their mother standing over them. And so I want to, as much as possible, as much as humanly possible, 
get them to the point where they do this on their own without prompting, without nagging, without goading, without rewards, without bribes, without threats. And so I have to start now. I can't wait until they're 18 and then all of a sudden, whoosh, you know, surprise, you're on your own. You know, I've got to just consider where they're at and then slowly, slowly, slowly pull them along into greater and greater autonomy greater and greater capacity to fulfill their responsibilities be productive and be responsible and all that so there's work to do right it's uh it's not done any more than their basement was clean the work of growing them into young adults is not done yet we still have a ways to go with that but when it comes to media do we approach it like that where we say hmm yeah, there's some work to do here. I do have responsibilities. I should clean up my space, but I'd really rather play outside. I'd really rather play video games. I'd really rather watch a movie. I'd really rather do something fun and entertain myself. When it comes to our responsibility to those that we are in authority over, do we have that mindset? Yeah, you know, I really should be checking on them. I really should be verifying, but I'm tired. And, uh, it, you know, and all of this circles back to propaganda, where we have a responsibility to be informed consumers of media. Unless you live in the mountains as a hermit, unless you are an Amish person who has no TV, who has no computer, who has no smartphone, who doesn't you know, follow the news, in which case you're, you're probably not listening to this podcast either, you are consuming media. You read, you watch, you listen, you get this inflow of information. And with modern technology, with computers and the internet and smartphones and TVs and all the rest, it is easier for few people, for, for a smaller and smaller share of the population, to have an outsized influence on what everyone else thinks and more to the point, what they feel. There's a quote from Thomas Sowell that uh, I love and I quote it often, which says that the problem is not that little Johnny can't read. The problem isn't even that little Johnny can't think. The problem is that little Johnny doesn't know what thinking is. He confuses it with feeling. And that brings us to the person of Edward Bernays, and a book by him called Propaganda, as well as a BBC documentary series from the early 2000s called The Century of the Self. I'll unpack this a little bit, and you might say, well, Garrett, you know, we're 20 minutes in, you said this was going to be about propaganda, and you're just now getting to the actual topic, right? You spent 20 minutes telling us about your kids needing to clean their basement, and I've been waiting, I've been waiting. I stayed tuned, and where's my propaganda? Well, here it is. Edward Bernays was the double nephew of Sigmund Freud. By double nephew, I mean that his mother was Sigmund Freud's sister, and also that Sigmund Freud was married to the sister of his father. So a brother and a sister married a sister and a brother, uh, two different families. And according to the century of the self, we would not even know who Sigmund Freud was were it not for Edward Bernays. Now, Edward Bernays is the father of the profession of public relations. He is the man we have to thank for that line of work in which pollsters and marketing gurus and very smart, very slick, very savvy individuals go and advise politicians and corporations how to sell their idea, how to sell their product, how to create name brand recognition of the sort that you want. You want name brand recognition like Tesla has, for instance. You want name brand recognition like Microsoft has, for instance. You want name brand recognition like Donald Trump has, where that is a household name. Any of those three and many others besides are household names. We know them. Even if you don't own a Tesla, you know what a Tesla is. You've seen them. You've heard of them. You know who Donald Trump is, even if you don't have a Donald Trump. <laughs> You know that Donald Trump is the president, but before he was the president, he was everywhere. He was in movies, he was in music videos, he was on TV, he was in the news, he was in the papers, he was writing books, he was publishing books, his name is plastered all over hotels and resorts all over the world. So you knew who Donald Trump was, there was name brand recognition. 
and there was word association. I say Trump, you think luxury. I say Trump, you think ostentatious. I say Trump, you say bold, blunt, honest, direct, ruthless, businessman, billionaire, rich, really rich. I'm really rich, right? That's what you think of. And then when he ran for president, you thought, oh my word. <laughs> Some people were absolutely for him from the very beginning, and they've never gotten off the Trump train. And others uh, on the left had spent years trying to encourage Donald Trump to run for president. And then when he did, they were against it because he was running as a Republican. He was running on conservative ideas and winning on conservative ideas and the Republican ticket. But Edward Bernays was the father of this modern profession of public relations, wherein you want to sell your idea, you want to sell your brand, you want to sell your candidacy. You talk with Edward Bernays and he tells you how to take the indirect approach. Now I want to introduce another name for you, which is B.H. Liddell Hart. B.H. Liddell Hart is one of the most highly acclaimed strategic thinkers of the 20th century. He wrote a book called Strategy, the Indirect Approach, which I read earlier this year, in which he went through historical examples and also modern day examples that he was familiar with, with uh, fighting America's wars abroad. Examples of where the direct approach fails often, more often than it succeeds, and where the indirect approach is highly successful. And another way of saying the indirect approach is you attack your enemy where their defenses are not up, where they do not expect you to attack, with a strength they do not expect that you have. Lure your enemy into attacking you where they think that you're weak, but you're actually strong, and then you're ready for them more than they expected you to be, and you crush them because they're not prepared. That was B.H. Liddell Hart's strategy and indirect approach in a nutshell. And Edward Bernays basically fathered the idea of doing this yet with popular psychology, doing this with marketing, doing this with campaigning. I'm going to attack your psychological defenses where they are weak and where you don't expect me to attack. And I'm going to encourage you to probe my defenses where you think that they're weak, but then they're actually very strong. And you come with a certain preconceived notion. And then I quickly defeat that notion because I was ready for you. I was expecting you. I wanted you to attack me there. I wanted you to punch me there. I wanted you to have that objection. And then I knocked it down just as quick as you raised it. Part of the reason why Edward Bernays was really good at this is because his double uncle, Sigmund Freud, had sent him his book on psychoanalysis. And Edward Bernays read this book. He thought, man, this is really brilliant. This is really smart stuff. I'm going to take this and use it for a different application than what my dear uncle Freud had in mind my dear uncle Sigmund. And so he did, and he applied these principles to mass marketing, to mass psychology. And I won't give away the ending, but if you watch The Century of the Self put out by the BBC in the early 2000s, talking about Edward Bernays, interviewing his daughter, interviewing people that worked with him, interviewing people who have studied his approach and read his book, which I also read, by the way, I read Edward Bernays' book, Propaganda. And the BBC documentary series basically concludes that you can chart so many of these shifts in popular philosophy and thinking and voting and purchasing habits, consumer trends. You can chart so much of this off of how Bernays was operating, who he was helping, who he was instructing to pick up the mantle after him throughout the 20th century, and now on into the 21st century, because he's gone, but his ideas remain. Edward Bernays is dead, but his approach lives on. And what's striking, and I'll give you just a few examples, is how effective it really is and how it's all around us now. And we are fish in water that don't realize we are wet. You take, for instance, a car commercial from the 1950s. And I'll give you the backstory from the documentary. The backstory was that the car companies came to Edward Bernays and they asked him, how do we sell cars? And Edward Bernays went and talked with psychoanalysts and asked what the car could be a symbol of psychologically. And he was told sex. The car is a symbol for sex a stand-in for a man's sexuality. So this man now is able to go anywhere he pleases. He can move about the earth at rapid speed, accomplish his objectives 
in style, and that car is his sexuality. And so then Edward Bernays comes back to the car company, and he says, hey guys, I got it. I know how you sell your cars, sell sex. So this commercial is played that obviously was fruit of the approach that Edward Bernays advised. And this commercial is a Lincoln or, or some such, right? Some 1950s Lincoln, I think, in a showroom. And a narrator talking about how this year's model is four inches bigger than last year's model. Hmm, really? Really? Are we talking about cars? Is that what we're talking about? Hmm, okay, interesting. But it gets better because right after the narrator has said this, as this well-dressed, smart-looking woman is walking around the outside of the car, admiring it, touching it. She gets into the driver's seat and she sits down. And as she sits down in the driver's seat, she tilts her head back and lets out a sigh of contentedness, of satisfaction, because apparently the upholstery is very comfortable. She grips the wheel and closes her eyes and she's very pleased to be in this automobile. And I watched this on this uh, documentary and my jaw just dropped like, oh my word, I had no idea. We think of commercials using sex to sell products anymore. And because the marketing geniuses have gotten increasingly obvious and blunt and direct and, uh, and all of that, we think that this is a relatively recent phenomena. They were doing it in the 1950s. And when they did it in the 1950s, they were using a lot more subtle insinuations and suggestions. The car's four inches longer. Now that I have the context that Bernays told your car company that the car was a symbol of sexuality, I don't think you're talking about the car. I think you're talking about a prophylactic. This is not a little blue Oldsmobile. This is a little blue pill, a big blue pill. That's one example. But uh, if you watch the whole series on YouTube, it's free. Uh, I would highly advise it. It's very, very interesting, and it explains a lot, a lot of things. You come away with this feeling of, oh my word, I live in the matrix. This is so contrived. I'm so surrounded by advertising. I'm so surrounded by efforts to manipulate me. That's why I'm so tired all the time. That's why I'm so exhausted. That's why I'm so cynical. It's because I'm constantly having my buttons pushed all day, every day. And the more subtle and the more indirect it is, the more effective, the better. The easier it will slip past my defenses and straight into my decision-making. So that's Edward Bernays in a nutshell. And apparently in his private life, he was not a pleasant person. His daughter, she's interviewed, and she says that his favorite word was stupid. And he would use it to describe anybody and everybody, anybody and everybody that didn't do what he wanted was stupid. His children were stupid. People that worked for him were stupid. The companies that hired him were stupid. The people were stupid. And so Edward Bernays, by contrast, was smart. He was very smart. And so he was going to take advantage of these stupid people. That is obvious that he felt that way and that he didn't feel particularly guilty about manipulating people, about pushing their buttons, is obvious when you look at the sort of things that he did and was involved in. People were being manipulated. They were being used. And uh, we, all like sheep, have gone astray. Sometimes we are dumb sheep. And that is not an argument for treating people like animals and having a casual, flippant, you know, disposable mindset towards them. But it's a warning. You know, if you know that you're a sheep and that you have these tendencies, you might look for a shepherd, maybe. You might think about, is there somebody that could protect me from the wolves that are trying to prey on me and the people that I love? Or is there a way that I can be less vulnerable, less woolly-headed? Well, I'm glad you asked because there is actually... Uh, an alternative character, a hero of sorts that comes to mind as I think about Edward Bernays. And that person is Neil Postman. Now, I don't know anything about Neil Postman to speak of, except for having read his book on the recommendation of the husband of my wife's cousin, first cousin, one of her first cousins that lives in Omaha, Nebraska, John Mays. Thank you, John Mays, if you're listening for recommending Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death. It was a great read, and I should read it a second time at least. Because Neil Postman writes in the 1980s about how we are all killing our brain cells with the sort of media that we consume. And Neil Postman doesn't just act like the grumpy curmudgeon and tell us all that we should read more books and watch less TV. He 
elaborates and he goes through the history of media consumption in America from colonial times. And he talks about how early on the American colonies were some of the most literate, well-read people. The American colonists early on before the American Revolution were some of the most well-read critical thinkers on the planet. There were more printing presses per capita here in America in what became the United States of America. And there was also far greater liberty to publish here in the colonies than there was back in the old country. And so a lot of ideas were communicated and then the public was able to judge them, was able to evaluate them, was able to critique them, was able to think about them critically. And so they developed these critical thinking abilities and skills and they became acquainted with speeches and with statements and with ideas which were not always true but which they were able to look at objectively and because they had their bibles and because they were not just literate but they were biblically literate they had read that we should be wise as serpents and harmless as doves they had read that we should resist the devil and he will flee from us they had read that we should be sober and vigilant for our adversary the devil goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour they had read things like this. They had read things like Paul saying that even if I or an angel come to you preaching another gospel besides that which was originally delivered to you, don't believe me. Don't take it. Don't take that bait. Stay true to the gospel as it was first delivered to you. So they had read these things. And then if they read a speech or a treatise or a tract from somebody like Benjamin Franklin, someone like Thomas Paine, someone like Edmund Burke. They didn't just take it at face value and they didn't just blindly follow it into a ditch, the blind leading the blind. They read it, they thought about it, and then they decided, do I believe this? Do I not believe it? Is this true? Is it not true? Is it good? Is it not good? And so according to Neil Postman, the early American colonists were informed and they were aware and they had high expectations that ideas, and products and persons needed to persuade them with rational arguments. They were products of the Enlightenment to a very great extent. And so they believed that they needed to hear a compelling argument. And because they read books, they had longer attention spans. Because they read a lot of books, they had longer attention spans. Right? They wouldn't have thought anything of tuning into my podcast and listening for an hour. You get bored after 10 minutes because I explain about having my children clean up the basement. They would have thought nothing of it so long as the content was good, so long as the ideas being communicated were important and necessary. The early American colonists came up with a form of government that was informed by the experience of the ancient Romans, the ancient Greeks, the Babylonians, the Persians, all of history that they could get their hands on. They came up with a form of government that was informed by English common law and tradition, English history, experience with good kings and with bad kings, with good parliaments and with bad parliaments. It was informed by experience from the Protestant Revolution. Now you could say Protestant Reformation, but it really was a revolution. It was a, it was a theological revolution. And for that reason, it was easy for the American colonists to throw off the British yoke. Once they realized what's at stake here is not just our taxation. It's not just regulation. It's not just can a British soldier insist and demand on being quartered in my house at the drop of a hat. And now we've got to house him. We've got to feed him. We've got to put up with if he's rude, if he's inappropriate towards our wives and daughters, if he makes a mess, if he's disruptive, we have to put up with all of that. It wasn't all of that alone. It was, are we free to worship God according to the dictates of our conscience? That's the next logical step from the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther nails his 99 thesis to the uh, doors of the church, and all of a sudden, the floodgates open. Indulgences are not biblical. In fact, they're a false gospel. What else is a false gospel? What else that the Roman Catholic Church has been feeding us has been propaganda, which by the way, according to Edward Bernays in his introduction to his book from the uh, 1920s, that is the origins of the word propaganda. The origins of the word propaganda are Latin, they come from a counter-reformation 
institution that was founded by a pope because he was concerned about the spreading of Protestantism in formerly traditionally Catholic lands. So he comes up with this missionary college, and I don't remember the entire Latin name, but within this Latin name was propaganda. And so this word propaganda in that context literally just meant to propagate. And this college, this training institution that the Pope initiated, commissioned, was designed to equip Roman Catholic missionaries to push back against Protestant ideas and to propagate the Roman Catholic faith to propagate the Roman Catholic tradition. Now, according to Bernays, this idea of propagating ideas is not only morally neutral, it's inescapable. Anybody who communicates anything at all is trying to propagate their ideas, their attitudes. As soon as you communicate an idea as if other people should believe it or agree with it or change their thinking, change their decision-making according to it, you're engaging according to Bernays in propaganda. Now, that's not how we use the term in common usage today. We say propaganda, and what we mean is manipulative efforts at effectively brainwashing people. You're trying to deceive people. You're trying to give them partial information or untrue information. You're either promoting falsehoods by leaving information out that gives the broader context and the fuller picture, or you're including information which is not actually true. You're misleading people because you want to get a desired effect out of them. You're being, like Machiavelli says, a pretender at virtue because it's it's advantageous to have people think that you are virtuous so you can get them to do what you want, so you can keep them from opposing you. That's what propaganda is. And that's the way that Edward Bernays did propaganda. And that's the way that so, so many of the secular public relations professionals who followed in the footsteps of Bernays have done propaganda. They're not propagating ideas by making rational arguments that appeal to your commitment to the truth and to what's right according to God's word. They're doing propaganda like Saul Alinsky talks about in Rules for Radicals, where you cut your hair, you put on nice clothes, you speak politely, you have a good reputation, and you gradually, indirectly accomplish your objectives. You work people over. You develop a relationship with them. You lull them into a false sense of security to the point that they trust you. And then when you ask them for a favor, when you present them with an option to go your way, they're inclined to. And they're inclined to help you get other people to go your way. Neil Postman talks in his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, about how the advent of radio really changed the way that information was not only transmitted but received by the public. It was transmitted to the public by fewer and fewer people, and so it was easier to control the flow of information, and it was easier to script things, it was easier to control uh, what got out there, and it was also easier to make it an emotional thing first and foremost, instead of a intellectual thing, instead of a rational thing. With the advent of radio, all of a sudden you could put music to the expression of your ideas, like I do at the beginning of this podcast. I do it because now it's fashionable. Now it is expected. If I don't have some intro music, people are missing it. But really what that music is designed to do is get you in a certain emotional state. Now I picked a track that I found on an open source database online. It's free music, open source music. No copyright. Anybody can use it. And the track that I keep using here this season is called Pistol Jazz. And I like it. I like it a lot. I like the way I feel when I listen to it. I like jazz, actually, particularly as a good fit for the way that I'm talking about things. I love listening to NPR until they start expressing ideas, uh, until I start realizing that, uh, oh, gosh, this is another propaganda attempt. This is more of Edward Bernays's handiwork. They're manipulating me. They read Alinsky. They read Machiavelli. They are manipulating me. But I love I love uh, their format. I love the way that they do it. I love their style, right? I hate what they're trying to do, but I love the way they're trying to do it. It's very relaxing. It's very soothing. It's very therapeutic. It's very calming. And it gives you this impression that you're being very thoughtful. You're being intentional. This is NPR, National Public Radio, Northeastern Colorado, right? It just sounds so good. And very often they'll intro their stuff with jazz. And, you know, I, I sat beside a jazz musician on a flight to Houston one time. And I asked him, he's a professional jazz musician, I asked him, so is there any structure, right? I don't know anything about jazz, but it seems like you 
you jazz musicians, you just get up there if you're in a band and you just improvise, right? It's all just made up on the spot. And he said, um, there's a structure, but it's just kind of a loose general framework. And then within that, each instrument, each artist, each musician improvises. And I like that. I like that in contrast with classical music where everything, every note needs to be played the way that it's written, at the tempo that it's written. I love the sound of jazz, especially with thoughtfulness, with ideas that are being communicated. I think it pairs nicely, as you might say, about a fine wine with a, a certain meal. It pairs nicely with thinking. So I have the intro music as pistol jazz. And I like that it's lively too, right? It's There's lots of different kinds of jazz. There's happy jazz, there's sad jazz, there's sexy jazz, there's playful jazz, there's, you know, whatever, right? There's lots of different jazz out there. I like that this jazz is lively and it's motivated. I like the name of it. I like that it's called pistol jazz, right? It's relaxed, but not too relaxed, right? There's a limit. I'm going to be relaxed unless you start acting the fool and then I might not be so relaxed. <laughs> or... I'm going to take my time here. I'm not in a rush. I want to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. For the anger of man does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. But I also want to be energetic. I don't want to be angry, but I also don't want to be limp. I don't want to be apathetic. I don't want to be, you know, ambivalent. I want to be full of energy to do what is right. And uh, and I don't want to be fake about it, right? Where it's positive, encouraging, K-love. And... You know, everything's got to be happy, happy, happy all the time. No, 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 no. Back to Neil Postman. Neil Postman talks about the advent of radio as the beginning of this downward trend in our attention spans, in our ability to think critically about ideas that are presented. Suddenly, you have fewer and fewer people able to control what more and more people think, and they do it by decreasingly rational arguments, increasingly emotional appeals. Franklin Delano Roosevelt is president, and he has his fireside chats. And he's president for a long old time during the Depression, which his policies made worse and prolonged, actually. He gets on the radio, and he talks to the American people. And he says things that sound good. And he says things that make them feel good. And so they keep voting for him against their self-interest. You fast forward again to the invention of the television. And Richard Nixon blames his makeup artist and the light crew and the TV for his loss to John F. Kennedy. John Fitzgerald Kennedy looks damn good on TV. And he is not too proud to wear some makeup. He looks good. He knows he looks good. He looks strong and tan and handsome. And Nixon, by contrast, is sweating and pale. And he knows that he doesn't look good. And he knows that it's going to cost him. And that just makes it worse. And he loses. And Neil Postman says, and I agree with him, that this has proven absolutely destructive and devastating to our culture, to our political processes, the kinds of people that we elect are the kinds of people that put ever more time and attention into how they look on camera and ever less time and attention into winning us over with rational arguments. So then we become less and less capable of evaluating rational arguments. We become less and less expectant that what a politician says should be true. If anything, we are just the opposite now. We don't expect that anything that they say is going to be the truth. When Donald Trump got up as a master showman, and won the Republican nomination, and won the election for president in 2016, and has kept at it for four years now, no one fully expected that he was going to keep his promises. I did not fully expect. I hoped, but I didn't expect it. I was hoping for the best and preparing for the worst and cynically expecting the worst that he was not going to fulfill his campaign promises because if there is one thing that we don't expect politicians to do in the modern era, it is tell the truth. And retroactively, when we read the Founding Fathers and what they wrote about the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and the Declaration of Independence and their reasons given, we, very many of us, dismiss that all as a, uh, a grab for power. They were just trying to excuse themselves. That, that wasn't really their real reason. Their real reason was that they wanted to enslave black people and steal land from Native Americans and disenfranchise women and protect their wealth. That was the real reason. They just manipulated everybody. How much of that view that we have is because for decades now we have been manipulated and we just don't want to believe that 
it can be otherwise. We're in an abusive relationship and we justify it and it's it's codependence. You know, the media, believe it or not, needs us. They cease to be viable when we stop tuning in. I just had an experience earlier this week where I had to call Netflix and I could have sworn that the guy I talked with said he was in Iran before I said, what? You're in Iran? <gasps> oh, oh, no, no, I, I, uh, I'm in the Philippines. You must have thought I said... Uh, refund or something. I don't know. Anyway, but I tried two months ago to cancel my Netflix subscription because this whole cuties thing, this this movie put out by this French lesbian or whatever, trying to supposedly empower young girls by exploiting them. It's pedophilia. It is normalizing the sexualization of children. And I saw the trailer. I didn't need to watch the movie. If you think I need to watch an hour plus of pedophilia in order to know that I'm against it, uh, I don't know where to start with you. But I canceled, or tried to, two months ago. And then last month, oh, look at that. They're still charging me. Interesting. Let's try this again. Let's cancel it again. And this time I'll take a screenshot of the confirmation saying it's canceled. So I did that. My wife texts me earlier this week during a busy work week. And she says, Netflix just charged us again. What? So now I'm pissed. And uh, I ended up calling them and I said, hey, I tried to cancel last month and the month before. Do you have any records of that? Uh, let me check. Yes, I see that, yes. Uh, okay, so why are you still charging me? I canceled, I canceled again. I'm still getting charged. Uh, you might've accidentally restarted your subscription. Well. How did I do that? I didn't do that. Uh, are you sharing your account with uh, anybody else? I have seven kids. We have different profiles for different of our kids. That's that's it. Could one of our kids logging in to Netflix on the TV have caused it to restart the subscription? Yes, yeah, yeah that very well could have been. Okay, well, I'm not gonna... <laughs> I was thinking to myself, I'm not even gonna get into how stupid that is, but... All I said was, okay, well, I want to cancel. And I just tried to cancel again, and I want to make sure it actually sticks this time. He says, okay, well, you're going to have to sign out of all your devices. There's a button you can click on the website and change your password too. I said, okay, well, I did that because I saw that on your website as well when I looked for the FAQs. And I'm just calling now to make sure you have it on record that I called. I want it to be clear do not restart the subscription. I do not want this subscription anymore. I'm done. And so I should be getting a refund. He said it went through, but that's what it takes, right? Netflix thought that they could sponsor content that mocked Christianity, that mocked Jesus. They could sponsor content that promoted pedophilia and normalized it, and that everyone would just accept that, right? They pushed the propaganda too far too fast. It was too direct. And all of a sudden, my defenses go up. All of a sudden, I say, oh, no, 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 no. Nope. Nope. Cancel. This is one of those few times where cancel culture is actually merited because the thing that you're trying to do is objectively bad. I don't have to pay this subscription. I don't want to pay this subscription. I don't want to support this. I don't want to fund you. So long as I do, you will think that you can keep doing this. And I can't allow you to think that. I'm not going to be a part of it. So I canceled. And that's what we need to do with these media outlets that manipulate our emotions. Now, in my completely unbiased opinion, I think you need to listen to more podcasts like mine and listen to less of the nightly news. I think you need to read more audiobooks and fewer newspapers and magazines. I think you need to listen to more pistol jazz and less pop music, less K-Love even. You know, it's, it's interesting. The creator of Veggie Tales, Phil Vischer, he has apparently become a social justice warrior, or he was all along, which gives me another reason to not like VeggieTales. That's a topic for another episode, or I might have touched on it in previous episodes, I don't remember. But uh, Phil Vischer and VeggieTales is the positive, encouraging Caleb crowd to a T. Funny, happy, charming, keeps it light, and yet the things he's communicating are what usher in a French Revolution-style overthrow of our current system. He's perpetrating the same uh, generous justice, social justice idea that Tim Keller's propagating. So we have to be aware. We have to be on our guard, be sober, and 
vigilant, for your adversary the devil goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Read B.H. Liddell Hart's strategy, The Indirect Approach. Watch the BBC's documentary series. There's four episodes. They're each about an hour long. The Century of the Self. It will explain so much. So, so much. It'll blow your mind. And it's not some Alex Jones, InfoWars uh, stuff where it can be dismissed as tinfoil hat wearing nonsense. Actual history, totally verifiable, totally legitimate. Look it up. It's so super real and important. Read Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death. Superb, not terribly long. It's about four or five hours long as well, if memory serves. Check it out. And uh, with that, I conclude this episode of the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This Oh, okay, a little guy sneezing here. Uh, it is, quote-unquote, 6.07 a.m. Uh, actually, 7.07 a.m. But uh, don't tell the uh, Daylight Savings crowd that. Um, kids are starting to wake up, starting to come to, starting to crawl out of their burrows and uh, enjoying the waking world again. Uh, thank you for listening to this episode of the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. Thank you for stretching your attention span with me today, tonight, whatever time it is that you listen. Uh, I pray that this finds you well and that uh, we all become better at employing our critical thinking skills, that gray matter between our ears uh, for God's glory and for one another's benefit. And I hope that this episode has been helpful to you in that regard, that I am making a rational argument. I'm not just manipulating your emotions. I'm not toying with you. I'm trying to appeal to you. I'm trying to talk with you as someone who needs to understand and apply the truth. The truth will set you free. So anyway, thank you for listening. Hit me up on social media. Email me at garrettmullet at gmail.com if you have any comments, questions, concerns, objections, complaints, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, God bless.